Welcome back to the Ancient Health Podcast, where we educate you on real health solutions that will help transform the way you live, feel, and overcome disease naturally. I'm your host, Courtney Versage, along with Dr. Josh Axe and Dr. Chris Motley. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Ancient Health Podcast. I'm super pumped to introduce our guest today. He is no stranger to the health and wellness space. You are probably familiar with him. He is a filmmaker, a health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Genius Foods, Becoming Smarter, Happier, and More Productive While Protecting Your Brain for Life. He's also the host of a super popular podcast, The Genius Life. Dr. Uh, Oz has featured him on his show, as well as Rachel Ray, The Doctors, and he's contributed to things like CNN, NBC Nightly News, The Today Show, The New York Times, and People Magazine. So I'm super pumped to welcome Max Lugavere to the show today. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Oh my God, thank you for that warm introduction, Courtney. This is amazing. I'm so happy to be here, and a long time coming. So again, my, my heartfelt gratitude. Oh, we're so glad to have you though, too, man. It's just been, um, we have like, whenever we have guests and, and they have their content, they have the information they put out there. Whenever you see something that really resonates, like it's actually touched many people, like it's, it's attainable. Like we get really excited because we have, we also take notes, man. Like you'll see me sometimes don't think like I'm texting away or anything. Like I literally take down notes whenever a guest says something, because if I've missed something, like I need to know something to help patients out and such. So thank you Dude, so much. Chris, well, I, I, I love it. I'm a, I'm a huge nerd for this topic. And I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm really just truly so grateful that I get to do this. And, and, and I'm afforded the ability to focus on this as my life's work. Mm. And uh, it's been it's been quite the privilege getting to write books like Genius Foods, go on these these incredible talk shows and have a, the platform that I've been given. So mm. I'm excited to, to get into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's fun. I think that it's really cool to interview guests that bridge the gap between conventional medicine, like what most people experience mainstream, and then more of just a different bio-individual approach to health. Because there's a lot of doctors and like Dr. Motley's in this space too, but sometimes people don't know how to access them. So in writing your books and the way you communicate through different social channels, I think it's really, it's accessible for people and they feel like they can relate to you. So it's meaningful. It's impactful. They're like, okay, this is really cool. I get it. So I, I really enjoy some of your social content too, and how you post stories and reels and, and just content that it's practical, tangible stuff that people can use. So Maybe you could give us, people may be familiar with your work and kind of the progression of your own health story, but like where you're at right now, what maybe has inspired you to move from your uh, original book, Genius Foods, and now we're looking at this new book, which is really cool that I think just, you know, pairs so well with where you started kind of building the foundation of Genius Foods, but Genius Kitchen. So what was kind of the inspiration and thought behind that um, as you kind of geared up for the development of that book? Absolutely. Such a, such, a, such a great starting place. Well, I mean, people, people that are unfamiliar with my work, you know, I think they should know that my why is the fact that my mother got sick at a very young age. She developed mm -hmm. a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia mm -hmm. back in 2011. And that began a decade long at this point journey for me to try to understand to the best of my ability why this would have happened to a woman at the age at which it did. She was 58 at the time of uh, the first presentation of her symptoms. And in tandem with that, what could be done to help her, if anything, and also what could be done to prevent this from ever happening to myself and others that I care about? Because I realized for the first time that I had a risk factor for developing dementia, right? Because once you have a family history of something, which I didn't pr have before, prior to my mother, but it, um, it was like a call to action unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. It was the line in the sand. And from that point on, I had had a, a passion for nutrition and fitness. I was interested in bodybuilding growing up just as a, as a, something that I, that I thought was fascinating. Not that I ever wanted to be a bodybuilder or anything like that, but I, I just thought as a, as a shy, introverted, insecure adolescent, this idea that you could eat in a certain way or take certain supplements that could then give you the ability to transcend your, your meager, insecure form. I mean, to me, that was just a very enticing premise, but it really became real for me. Mm. When, when my mom got became sick mm. and 
So that that was the that was the um, the inciting incident that led to the research put forth in my book Genius Foods, which came out in 2018, and it's what I consider a nutritional care manual for the human brain. It's without bias. I didn't uh, have a personal business enterprise at the time. I didn't even expect it to become as successful as it had become. I really just, my passion was to get this information out there and, and also to write the kind of book that, that I wish my mother had had mm-hmm. when she was forming her early ideas about nutrition and what it meant to eat healthily. Mm-hmm. And so my new book, Genius Kitchen, is really where the rubber meets the road. It's taking all of those ideas and making them practical, making them achievable, turning them into recipes. And mm-hmm. in the book, we have over 100 super delicious recipes using low cost, easy to access foods. Mm. Um, and the foods that, that the recipes center around are what I call the genius foods. Mm. And these are the foods that have, they have the highest degree of nutrient density that I've found in my research, but with a, a specific sort of leaning towards uh, being supportive of optimal cognitive function, optimal mental health and optimal brain health ultimately. And not just that, but the book is a, a wellness guide and a kitchen guide. It teaches people how to minimize exposure to environmental toxicants that might be lurking in their own kitchens Mm -hmm. and also how to optimize digestion, which is so important because if you're not digesting your food properly, which is a huge topic, right? But if you're not digesting your your food properly, you're shortchanging the ability of your food to to have a cardioprotective, a neuroprotective effect, and you're wasting a lot of money in the process. So... Mm So that's really what Genius Kitchen is all about, making the, uh, the, these sort of high-level ideas practical. When, uh, when I was looking, um, reading over and looking over your podcast, I think that the way that you do make it practical to allow people who are listening right now, that when we're talking about neuroprotection, I think that people cannot believe sometimes that the way that we can take, I'll say simple foods, but foods that are good quality ingredients can actually have that big of an effect. Um, I liked uh, one of the podcasts you had um, recently with a medical doctor, you were talking about like cytokine and inflammation. And I love that the, when you say genius foods is tailored around um, a mixture of like, if you reduce inflammation in your gut, you'll increase, you know, neural protection because you're reducing that amount of effect on the brain. Um, has this, like when you, when you delved in and you experimented, uh, just like with your journey with your mother, how is it like, did it like morph even more? Like when you started to investigate well, like the process, like when you got that itch to like, I'm going to go in and investigate this and you put the book out there and it went really, really big. I just, I was just thinking like, what did that motivation over 10 years, did you just build up notes and knowledge and you just put it all in paper or just like it all came to you at one time, you just wrote it all out? No, no, no. That, that's such a good question. Actually, when I set out to write Genius Foods, it was going to be, uh, my, my intent was to create the dementia prevention manual. But wow. as I dove further and further into the research, this whole body of, of literature stood out to me showing us how food cannot just have a neuroprotective effect that benefits us years down the line, offering mm-hmm. us potentially years, additional decades of cognitive health, but also can affect our brain in the here and now. And this mm-hmm. is owed to a, uh, again, a burgeoning um, line of research being called nutritional psychiatry. So this line of inquiry looks to see how food affects our mood, and not just our mood, but how our ah. brains function in terms of our ability to pay attention, to tune out distractions, to have impulse control, to plan. These are all aspects of our cognition called executive function. Mm. And so for me, that just like my doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley calls it, were just were, were <laughs> blown wide open because I was like, okay, so I don't actually... This is going to make the book much bigger than just the dementia prevention book. This is going to be literally a care manual for the human brain because, and also I knew this was such an important revelation for me as somebody who really ultimately did want to help my readers prevent their own dementia mm-hmm. because I realized that young people don't give a shit about dementia. Young people don't care. They think it's a, they think it's an old person's disease. They think, they think it's something that is genetically predetermined, mm-hmm. inevitable, possibly an inevitable aspect of aging, but What I realized is that dementia begins in the brain oftentimes decades before the first symptom, right? Other neurodegenerative conditions, Parkinson's disease, for example, by the time you show up to your neurologist with the first symptom of Parkinson's disease, half of the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra portion of the brain that that affect movement are already dead. They've already perished by the time you show up to that neurologist's office and and you present with a, a movement complaint. So for me, I was like, okay, this is the ultimate Trojan horse. Like we, we're now seeing in the literature 
that there's this there's this incredible signal that we can eat and live in a way today that's going to actually improve the way that our brains work in the here and now. And I think it's so empowering because so many people they think that the brain that they have is the brain the, the brain that they were born with is the brain that they're stuck with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's not true. You know, a lot of people have this expectation that genius is born, right? But genius is yeah. built. It can be built by the foods that we're eating, by the way that we live our, our lifestyle. And to me, that was just like, that was the light bulb moment where I was like, okay, this isn't going to be <laughs> actually the, the original. No, I don't think I've ever mentioned this on a podcast because I'm so embarrassed by it. But <laughs> the, we uh, love this stuff. <laughs> the, yeah, the original name for genius foods that I, that I sold the book proposal mm-hmm. under was Cognition Nutrition. And I think that's pretty cool. I, I don't think that's so bad. I don't, th- I don't think it's that good. I don't know. Because most people don't know what the word. If, Cognition. I, maybe. Yeah, most, <laughs> mo- yeah. And, I, and I, I like to think that people are, you know, like I don't talk down to, to you know, I don't, I don't like to dumb down my content. But, you know, I don't. Cognition is like a word that, you know, I'm sure that if you, that if you did like a population <laughs> level survey. So it was called Cognition Nutrition because it was really going to be about that. It was going to be about how to protect our brains as we as we get older, how do we prevent this condition that my mom had. But um, but once I started, I started discovering all of the ways that food affects our mood, our ability to, our, our processing speed, our executive function, our ability to think, to remember mm-hmm. in the here and now, not just decades down the line, but in the here and now, I was like, okay, we're calling it genius foods. Genius foods. And really kind of add one thing. Like, I, I think that's really great because in the book, how you describe the things that you recommend to eat, um, you're right. Like when now they have like the research back in, I mean, a few years ago, they talked about like neuroplasticity and how the brain, brain can actually grow and rewire. And I that you're right. A lot of times people think that you're stuck with what you've got and they don't actually think that your brain can be built. Like you can actually create more plasticity and you can actually create healthier brain. They just think that your brain's your brain. And that's what I loved about it, the way that you approach with fatty acids and the way that you mix greens and phytonutrients in it. So anybody that's out there is listening, look at these, these ingredients because building blocks is what most people um, don't realize are needed for the brain. And they think they just build their muscles, but I'm like, no, your brain is your biggest, you know, basically muscle. So um, just to say that, but Courtney, I'll let you talk. I just want to, and I wanted to get into like in the book though, what some of the biggest detriments to in our diets to neural health. I just want to throw that out there. Go ahead, Courtney. I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to write. Oh, you're good. This conversation is great. And I think too, like, because I think you kind of really hit on something. No young person is really considering what their health is going to look like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Like you're, it's like, well, I get there. I'll, I'll deal with whatever it is that I was dealt. And we now know that epigenetics and the lifestyle choices we're making on the front end, like the earlier years are having massive impact in how our body ultimately regenerates, fights disease, how well we handle stressors later in life. So I think that even like the concept of genius foods, it's it's just promoting well-being and health. It's preserving the ability to adapt to stress, which ultimately leads to longevity. So I think that that's really cool just in how like you've approached the whole topic. It's not just, hey, one classification of people that maybe are predisposed to cognitive decline, you know, with mm-hmm. Alzheimer's specifically. And a lot of times we hear it now called like type three diabetes with like blood sugar, you know, it's like, okay, well, maybe if I have blood sugar dysregulation later in life, then that's something I'll start to look into. But as far as like genius foods and in a season where maybe you don't have symptoms, or I think a lot of people do have brain fog. I don't think they're, they're functioning optimally in terms of their cognition and and their ability um, to think and have mental clarity because it's like, it's a progression. So it just kind of creeps up. It slowly declines. Like and piggybacking off of Motley, I know I'm kind of like pinballing my thoughts right now, but where would those foods land? Like the top five that you deem are the most healing and then maybe ones that you're just like universally, like we see these foods as a threat to the body inflammation and progression of disease. Yeah. I love that. And you know, as you were speaking, it reminded me of this thing that sometimes you hear younger people say, and I'm, you know, I consider myself still a, a younger person, but there's this, there's this idea that, you know, I'm, 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 I don't need to be here for a long time. I'm here for a good time, here for a good time, not here for a long time. You know, All right, that's good. I, I want to be here for both. I want to be here for a good time 
And we could define being here for a good time as being here without disability, without chronic disease, because that's not a good time, right? That's a, that's a pretty shitty time. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen up close and personally. And, and, and we want to be here for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the foods that can help best us achieve that, that can help us best achieve that goal. Again, I call them the genius foods, not a scientific term. It's a term that I've invented, but foods like wild salmon, for example, um, mm -hmm. which is really, it's a, it's a specific fish, but it really can represent a category of foods, fatty fish and ideally wild. Um, we know from an evidence standpoint that fish is medicine for the brain. I mean, you, we can have the debate about red meat. I, I personally think that red meat is a, is, a, is a total health food, especially for certain populations. But uh, fish, when it comes to the evidence, even people who are genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, one to two servings a week can, mm -hmm. help, can help dramatically reduce your risk. And that's due to, uh, well, there, there are many potential mechanisms, but one is that it provides an abundance of preformed omega-3 fatty acids, which we know are the, important, the, the most important structural building block for the human brain. The brain, we also require omega-6 fatty acids, but nobody, I don't think there's anybody arguing that we have a deficit of those in the standard American diet, right? We're consuming mm -hmm. them whenever we consume grain and seed oils. Uh, there's an abundance of them in factory farmed meat, which we know people are over consuming, consuming these days. And even in farmed fish, there's, you know, more than enough omega-6 fats to go around. But omega-3 fats, most people are, are, are under consuming. And when you perform exercise, for example, you are sending the signal to your body and brain to adapt, to grow more resilient. And one uh, thing that happens as, the result, as a result of exercise, your muscles release compounds called myokines. One, of, one myokine is BDNF. Our brains also release BDNF. And BDNF is considered a miracle grow protein for the brain. It helps to promote the growth of new brain cells. It helps to support the, and promote the health of your pre-existing brain cells. But when it comes to growing new brain cells, your brain can't create something from nothing. It needs those building blocks. And that's why omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids are essential. They're the essential fatty acids. They're the only fats actually that we need to get to sustain our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so wild salmon um, or sardines or herring mackerel, all great sources of, of these fats. And when you eat wild salmon, you also get another really important compound called astaxanthin which has been called a putative longevity agent. It's been shown to stimulate the FOXO3 pathway, which is a longevity gene pathway. What was that again? Say that one with Fox FOXO3. Yeah, there's a... Ooh, that's there, good. Yeah. I'm writing this down. Write it, write it down, yeah. I mean, a, a number of things like fasting, um, a number of hormetic stressors have been shown to stimulate that pathway, um, which is associated with longevity in smaller organisms. Um, but astaxanthin which is this marine carotenoid found exclusively in wild salmon, shrimp, crab. They, uh, they accumulate it from the algae they eat. So it's generated by algae. So it's, it's still a plant carotenoid essentially, but it's, it's accumulated in the flesh of salmon, which is what makes salmon, it gives salmon that characteristic red color. Also it turns flamingos, it turns flamingos pink. So this pink carotenoid has been shown to be very beneficial to neural tissue to eye health, to skin health. So from that standpoint, fatty fish is, is a, it's a no-brainer. Um, mm -hmm. We see at the population level that people who eat more fish have better cognition, their offspring have better cognition. So it really is a, it really is a powerful brain food. I would say another food that I talk a lot about are eggs, whole eggs. Um, even conventional eggs are a powerful health food. I don't like to promote the products of the industrial food complex and in particular the factory farm system but even a conventional egg is a health food because you've got to consider that when an embryo is developing the first structure to assemble is the nervous system which includes the brain so literally an egg yolk contains everything that nature has deemed important to grow and nurture uh, a brain it's got a little bit of b12 it's got a lot of choline which we know 90 percent of adults don't consume the adequate intake of which is really important for building your cell membranes, uh, your neuronal membranes in particular, really important to serve as the backbone for acetylcholine, which is a mm. neurotransmitter involved in learning and memory. So egg yolks are incredible. I mentioned red meat. I think, you know, red meat is, is super healthful. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you and many people listening to this podcast will agree. It hasn't been as rigorously studied in the context of brain health as mm -hmm. fish, for example. But there is lots of good reason to suspect that red meat is a, is a great brain food. They've found that people who eat more choline, which again, you know, eggs are rich in, but so is red meat, have a 30% risk reduction for developing dementia. Mm. We know that red meat is rich in vitamin E. 
It's rich in creatine, which has been shown to uh, boost cognitive function in people who don't consume creatine-containing food products uh, very frequently, like vegans and vegetarians. It's a very bioavailable source of zinc, great source of, if grass-finished, carotenoids like lutein and zeaxanthin, so, and also iron. You know, you just can't beat the fact that it, it pro provides heme iron, which for premenopausal women, it's, a, it's the most bioavailable source there is, uh, pretty much. Number, number of other great foods. I mean, I love to talk about dark leafy greens. I know that there's some debate. You know, there's all these like extreme, there are all these camps, right, within the nutrition community. Like every time I post about the fact that I enjoy a kale salad now and then, I get people coming out of the woodwork saying kale is toxic. Kale is the top source that I know of, of lutein and zeaxanthin, which are carotenoids that have been shown to help protect the eyes against age-related macular degeneration. We also know that they protect the brain um, as it ages, they prevent lipid peroxidation. So this is really important in keeping your neuronal cell membrane healthy. They've shown in randomized control trials, there was a University of Georgia study that found that 36, uh, 34 to 36 milligrams of combined lutein and zeaxanthin led to a 10% boost in visual processing speed in people who were in, in college students, which is pretty remarkable because college students are already thought to be at the peak of their cognitive prowess. So this is, again, goes back to people who think that the brain that they have is just the brain that they're stuck with, right? Like carotenoids like lutein and zeaxanthin, we've known for decades at this point that they accumulate in the eyes. But now, because we can see them in the macula, we know that the their concentration in the macula correlates pretty tightly with their concentration in the brain because eyes are neural tissue. Mm. And they also play a, a neuroprotective and cognition-boosting effect um, in the brain as well. So kale is a great source. It's like the number one source of these carotenoids. It also provides fiber, provides folate, um, which we know is important for DNA synthesis and keeping levels of homocysteine down, which is a, a, when elevated a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So researchers out of Rush University actually show us that people who eat a large bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger. Wow. This could be wow. attributed to healthy user bias, Right, but there are, I mean, there is plausible mechanism here to suggest that dark leafy greens are beneficial, whether it's kale because of the carotenoids or uh, arugula, which is a great source of dietary nitrate, which we know supports the nitric oxide pathway, um, or spinach, which is a, another great source of folate. So there are all these different mechanisms. Um, and yeah, those are just a few of the foods that I think are, are, are just off the top of my head, really important to consider including on a regular basis. And actually, Another um, study that I that I stumbled upon inadvertently, which uh, really influenced my writing of Genius Foods, it was a Tufts University study that found that people that adhere to the advice, people that closely adhere to the advice to eat all things in moderation, just end up eating a bunch of confectionery products and drink sugar-sweetened beverages, and their diet quality is not that great. But people who have a, actually a narrower, narrower range of foods that they eat on a regular basis, but the, the foods tend to... Be, with like a narrow range of healthier foods tend to be better off in terms of their health. So interesting. Yeah. So, so for me, it's about like providing just like being as like making it as simple as possible for people. Like these are the foods, just buy these foods on a loop. That's what I do when I go to the supermarket. <laughs> I think do complicate. I think it could, maybe it's, it, it's just me, but like if, as you get into learning a little bit more about your health, and then you start seeing improvements, you all of a sudden start to feel this need to do everything. And it's like, I need all the supplements and I need to have the most diverse diet of all of the different plants and meats and, you know, all the little additives, like the hemp seeds and all this, you know, stuff. And it's like, everything has a place, but it can get overwhelming. I even personally had an instance, like, I mean, I ended up with like the most wrecked gut ever because I was doing so many raw foods. And I was just like, there was so much that it was creating all this inflammation in my gut because I wasn't producing enough enzymes to break it all down. So it was great, but I would have been so much better off had I just stuck with a few foods, like just eggs and like some leafy greens. Like you said, like, I love those foods, but I was making my meals so complicated and there was just so much there in one meal. And I probably had some food sensitivities and things too that were just like triggering, but you never know when there's like 75 ingredients in your salad. It's like, mm. how do you know which one is like triggering? So I like that you mentioned that because for somebody that's starting out, they may feel overwhelmed. Like they need to have everything. They need to have a smoothie with 15 ingredients and they need to have all the different superfoods. And, 
you know, you can gain a lot of ground when it comes to healing and your health, just with eliminating a lot of garbage and committing to some of the things that are super nutrient dense. I, I think that uh, one of my, my mentors, he told me, he says, when you start to add in like your, your, uh, your superfoods into your diet, he says, you have to look at it as your body like a big stew, stew or a soup that's getting cooked. He said, do you dump everything in there at one time? He says, no, you put a little bit of this in there and you see how it starts to simmer. And so you have to do it to the body. You have to add things in a bit at a time so you can metabolize them all. I want to touch base too, and I'm, I, want to, I don't want to shift it too far, but in the book, uh, when you say genius foods, um, I did love the fact that you mentioned about how um, certain fatty acids, certain oils out there are, are on the shelves that are not great because many people don't realize that oils can go rancid. Oils can, uh, certain oils are not the best for you. And, you know, people today, they can use rancid oils or use bad oils to cook their food in and it's something they're daily intaking. Can you, can you touch a bit on about how, because, you know, oils are good food for your brain. Um, can you touch more about that, about people having this, uh, using bad oils? in our Yeah, ab absolutely. So in Genius Foods, I think my book was one of the first books to really blow the lid on the problem with grain and seed oils, especially when over-consumed. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are eating a piece of you know, a, a corn, an ear of corn, corn on a cob, right? There, first of all, nobody would describe corn as a fatty food. And corn on the cob is a per, can be a perfectly healthy food, right? I enjoy it every summer on the grill. I love it. But the problem is when you take an oil, like corn oil, first of all, think about the intensive level of processing that uh, such an oil has to undergo in order to be made. I mean, think about how much corn has, to, how unnatural it is. Not that I'm, not that everything that's natural is good for you mm -hmm. and that everything unnatural is, is bad for you. But most of the time, these oils undergo intense processing. Sometimes they use a, a neurotoxin called hexane to extract the oils. Sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. But all of these grain and seed oils undergo a step in the production chain called deodorization. Um, there's also degumming, but deodor de deodorization in particular, I think is a really important uh, step to bring people's attention to because it creates a small but significant amount of trans fats in the mm. oils. Now, trans fats, people might be familiar with partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, which were about seven or eight years ago now banned by the FDA because we realized that even though these products, products containing partially hydrogenated fats had been on the market for decades at that point, that there was no safe level of trans fat consumption and that these fatty acids, these man-made fatty acids are incredibly toxic to our cardiovascular systems and to our brains as well. So the FDA banned partially hydrogenated fats, but we, I mean, trans fats still exist in the food supply and they exist in these grain and seed oils. Again, in small amounts, the dose makes the poison, but to the, at the degree that people are consuming these oils, corn oil, canola oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil, they all undergo the same production steps for the most mm. part. You're ingesting a significant amount of these fats. I mean, most people that are consuming the standard American diet are, are, are ingesting anywhere between one and two grams of trans fats on a daily basis. Wow. Which we know is associated with worse cardiovascular health, with worse memory function, even if you're young and quote unquote healthy and higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. So there's that. There's the fact that they all contain, to some degree, these, these small amounts of trans fats. Now, if, you're, if, you, if you don't use any in your home and you end up ingesting a little bit out at a restaurant, is that cause for concern? Probably not, right? Because again, the dose makes the poison. Mm -hmm. A lot of these oils undergo um, oxidation, which you mentioned, because the primary fatty acid that constitutes these oils is called linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid. It's a polyunsaturated fat. Polyunsaturated fats are the most delicate and damage prone. They're the most prone to oxidation. They have the highest degree of unsaturation. So monounsaturated fats are a little bit more saturated. And then of course you have saturated fats, which are the most chemically stable um, and the least prone to oxidation. But polyunsaturated fats are fairly delicate um, or I should say quite delicate, especially um, in relation to monounsaturated fats and to saturated fats. And because of the intensive production that they undergo, They've done studies where they found that most of them already have oxidative, they have oxidation and oxidative byproducts in them um, wow. at the point of purchase already. And that's prior to you cooking with them, using them to fry foods, or ingesting them because you've ordered a fried dish in a restaurant where those oils are literally sitting in the fryer for days. In restaurants, restaurants are notorious cost cutters. So we expect them to change the oil perhaps with every dish, right? Those oils are sitting in those fryers for hours, if not days. 
And keeping those oils at such high temperatures, they create, again, the, the oils oxidize, they create byproducts like aldehydes, mm -hmm. and a damaged oil damages you. We know that you are what you eat, literally, when it comes to fatty acids. We know that the amount of linoleic acid in our adipocytes, so in our, in our fat tissue, our fat cells, has exploded by about 150% over the past 100 years. And these fats also get tugged along by, for example, our um, lipoproteins. So our LDL um, lipoproteins, which our livers create benevolent in the sense that they exist to bring, to chart cholesterol and triglycerides around in the body. But we see that when these particles are enriched with oxidized linoleic acid, as opposed to oleic acid, which is a monounsaturated fat, that they're more prone to oxidative modification they're more likely to become an inflammatory phenotype, and they're more likely to be taken up by immune cells like monocytes, which is the first step in the process of atherosclerosis. So they're, they're I mean, that's, that's just not good compared to oleic acid, which is the most common fat, the most abundant fatty acid in extra virgin olive oil and, and also uh, avocado oil. So we know that these fatty acids integrate themselves into these highly damage prone and usually already damaged by the time we ingest them, fatty acids easily integrate into our fat tissue, into our LDL lipoprotein particles. They obviously also are what is used to create brain cells. Like they integrate into our neuronal tissue. And we don't yet, I think, really know what the downstream consequences of that are. But we see that rates of Alzheimer's disease and, and other neurodegenerative conditions are increasing over time. Our genes aren't changing. Certainly our food environment is. And one of the, I think the, the, the major changes, the most easily observed changes to our food environment has been the, just the, that, our, that it's become saturated with these grain and seed oils. Do you find like, and one of the next questions I would think somebody could ask is like with grain and seed oils, um, is there a possibility that the oils of bad fats it, it can be in the presence of bread? Since it's grain, if you had certain breads and stuff like that, can those uh, oils be present in like a wheat product or something? So if they eat the eat bread, would they have a possibility of getting these rancid bad fats as well since it comes from grains as well, the grain seeds? Yeah, I mean, they're, you, these oils are used to create everything and anything in the modern food supply. They're used to fry our foods. Mm -hmm. they're, you, you'll find them in granola bars. You'll find them in cereals. You'll use them. They'll, you'll find them coating roasted nuts that have really been fried in these oils. Um, you'll find them in spreads and salad dressings, I think is one of the primary culprits. Now, linoleic acid, when contained in whole food, is not inherently bad in any way, right? Like there's linoleic acid in walnuts. There's linoleic acid in trace amounts in, in an ear of corn, right? Are we to worry about linoleic acid when contained in whole foods? No, because in, whole, in their whole food form, they're bound with antioxidants that protect the fats. And they're also much smaller amounts, right? Today, we're just over-consuming linoleic acid by an order of magnitude. So um, I'm glad you brought that up because for me, it's not about like fear-mongering. The answer to so many questions in, in nutrition science is, is context-dependent, right? Mm -hmm. So linoleic acid in the context of over-consuming rancid and heated and reheated cooking oils is no bueno. But linoleic acid in the context of a, of a whole foods diet is totally fine. Yeah, I would be interested uh, to know if you, when you're eating out, because this is always something, I mean, you touched on this, like almost every single restaurant is going to use some type of, even high-end restaurants, they're using canola oil, they're using stuff that is, you know, subpar. It's not, it's not going to be something that's probably high quality that you would be buying and using in your own home. So one, do you ask about that when you go out? And two, and there's probably a lot of overlap. Um, when you are cooking anything, so say you're like roasting vegetables or you're cooking your eggs, what are your preferred oils or, you know, butter, like butter, is it ghee or, you know, you do you use tallow, like some of those that maybe people aren't as familiar with, like, what are your kind of, what's your strategy or go-tos? Yeah, I actually, I had this experience. I was at a hotel for New Year's um, and I, with the hotel had this great like omelet station and I went up to the, I went to the omelet guy and I was like, Hey. You know, I ordered my omelet, but uh, what are the kinds of oils that you use? And he showed me this, like this, it was like a plastic bottle, like a squirt bottle. And the oil was very clear. It was like, there was no, I could tell that it wasn't extra virgin olive oil or anything like that. It clearly wasn't butter. And so I asked him if he could please, you know, use 
extra virgin olive oil to make my omelet instead of what he was using. And he he kind of gave me a look like, oh, you're making me go out of my way here. But uh, but he did it. And I was very grateful. And I was it made me so comfortable knowing that he was using this whole food matrix, essentially fat that humans have been pressing and consuming for thousands of years at this point, as opposed to this canola oil, industrially refined sludge. Uh, so that, 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 that made me really happy. But in terms of the oils that I use in my house, you know, I'm, I really do. I practice what I preach. I use primarily extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil. I, I enjoy butter, but I will say that I'm not one of these people that, um, that likes to drown my food in butter and ghee and, and even tallow for that matter, because here's the thing, saturated fats and saturated fats really is a category. There are multiple kinds. There are different kinds of saturated fats. There are, there's palmitic acid, myristic acid, stearic acid. They all have differing effects on our physiology. So fat is not fat is not fat, right? Just like protein is not protein is not protein. Carbs are not carbs. Like these are, these are categories under which we can further, we can further speak with like with nuance and granularity, right? At this point. So certain saturated fats have been shown to be very healthful from a meta, uh, cardiometabolic standpoint. And stearic acid would be the, the primary one that comes to mind. It's most abundant in dark chocolate. You also find it in, in beef to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. But other fatty acids um, really do drive uh, levels of LDL lipoprotein up. And I think that the benefits outweigh the risk, risks when you're consuming those kinds of fats in whole food form. Like when I'm eating a a piece of beef tenderloin or even a ribeye, right? Like mm -hmm. I know that I'm getting all this great protein, all this great micronutrition, you know, whether it's iron, zinc, creatine, as I mentioned, vitamin E in that steak, that I'm not really worried about the saturated fat content. And also I tend to prioritize, although I don't exclusively eat grass-finished beef, but I tend to prioritize mm -hmm. grass-finished beef, which has a lower proportion of saturated fat and a higher proportion of monounsaturated fat and, and a higher amount of omega-3s and such. But, um, but when using cooking fats like, like butter, ghee, I don't really use butter, ghee, and tallow that often because I'm of a genotype where I'm probably prone to hypercholesterolemia, and I, a lot of people are. And so, you know, I'm not a big like, oh, we have to drive our LDL down as much as possible. But, um, but I don't think that there's any scientific uh, evidence supporting this notion that we want to be driving it up for no good reason either. And when looking at an oil, which is a very nutrient poor product to begin with, right? Very ca oils are very calorie dense, very nutrient poor. Um, I like to stick to the fats that I know are going to be good for my cardiovascular health, which my, which, which brain health relies on. Mm -hmm. And for that, the evidence is really incontrovertible at this point that extra virgin olive oil is like the best. We can look at animal studies. We can look at Petri dish, you know, in vitro studies. We can look observationally. We can look to the PREDIMED study, which is, was an incredible study showing us that extra virgin olive oil is highly beneficial from a, from the standpoint of cardiovascular health. We know that it's beneficial, as I mentioned, from the standpoint of keeping our LDL lipoproteins healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Butter is something that uh, it's super interesting. I'm, you know, I, I, when I consume butter, I consider it an indulgence and I love butter. I, I use it. Um, but, um, but butter is actually unlike other dairy fats because it's had its milk fat globule membrane disrupted, which is a bit of a mouthful, but that makes butter more so than heavy cream or full fat milk or yogurt, a lot more prone to promoting dyslipidemia. Um, oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Because, wow. Wow. Yeah, butter. There have been studies that have compared the effect on LDL uh -huh. between butter and heavy cream, and butter is just heavy cream that's been churned. But the churning process of heavy cream disrupts this 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 membrane that basically protects the fatty acids in, or I should say it, it's basically bound to the fatty acids in, in milk fat. Mm. It's a matrix of proteins and phospholipids that gets disrupted when we create butter. And it's one of the reasons why you'll see butter, but not cream cause your LDL levels to, to increase. So ah, that's, oh, I've got to research. That is really good. Uh, yeah. Really good. Like with, um, with cream, um, like you were talking about your genotype, and I hope this doesn't take us too far off like what we're going down now, but when you're talking about genotypes, some people out there may say like, well, what is this about genotype or can they find out about their genotype or, you know, how can they eat for their genotype? Um, is there any particular testing or do you have a general rule like for their, you know, if people like finding out their own genotype to see what they could consume? Is yeah. that easily accessible at all? 
Yeah, I mean, this whole field of nutrigenomics, nutrigenomics, we're just at the very tip of the iceberg. But I think one thing that we do uh, believe to be true with an increasing level of certainty is that carriers of the APOE4 allele, which is mm -hmm. one in four people, so one in four people listening to this this uh, this episode of your show, are going to carry this this gene polymorphism that increases their risk in the United States against the background of the standard American diet for developing Alzheimer's disease. Mm. One four, again, one in four people carry it, and the APOE4 allele, whether you, depending on whether you've got one or two copies, increases your risk for developing Alzheimer's between two and 14 fold. So I carry this gene, so did my mom, many people carry it. So you know, again, it's very common. And it's not, a, it's not a determinant gene that one will develop Alzheimer's disease. It's a, it's a, it's a genetic risk factor. One of the ways that, uh, that the APOE4 allele has been um, suspected to put us at increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease is because it can promote cerebrovascular damage. And one way that it can affect our blood vessels negatively is by um, driving up levels of, of LDL. And the way that it does this is by affecting the way that the liver recycles these LDL lipoproteins. So people that carry huh. APOE4 allele, they're not, as effect, they're not as effective or efficient at recycling LDL lipoproteins, which can allow them to back up in the blood, essentially. Um, gotcha. The way it works is your liver sends out these APOB-wrapped lipoproteins, VLDL. They go around your body, dropping off payloads of cholesterol and triglycerides. And before too long, your liver, the LDL receptors on the surface of the liver, suck them back up. Mm -hmm where they're then used to create bile acids, sent back out, for example, um, or dis dismantled and then, and, then, and then reassembled. So people that carry the APOE4 allele aren't as uh, effective as that to begin with. Mm -hmm. And saturated fats, what they, the reason why they're so well documented to raise levels of LDL in some people is by reducing the availability of the LDL receptor on hepatocytes on, on the ah. surface of the liver. So for people that carry the APOE4 allele, which again is one in four people, eating a diet that's just like loaded with saturated fat, and in particular butter, and um, I would say butter is a major instigator, um, mm. they'll, see, they'll see a response in their LDL lipoprotein particles. So that's just the recommendation that I would make to, to APOE4 carriers. You don't want to overindulge in saturated fat. It's also the fact that a grass-finished animal has a lower proportion of saturated fat to me says something about the relative proportion of fats that we're supposed to be ingesting, right? Yeah. Also, cows are, are modern creations, right? A cow, uh, our hunter-gatherer, I mean, so apropos for the, for when talking about like ancestral living, right? Like one of our ancestors would not have had access to an animal as fatty as the modern cow. If you've ever looked at wild game, it's incredibly lean. So today we, we are consuming a, a lot more saturated fat, I think, than we ever have in human history. Now, I don't like to fearmonger, and I eat ribeyes, and I, as I mentioned, you know, so I indulge in butter and stuff like that. So I don't think fear is warranted here. And the benefits of eating red meat, I think, outweigh the, the risks. But I think that there is, a, there is a rationale to reaching for, for slightly, you know, leaner cuts, for example, if you're prone to dyslipidemia, hypercholesterolemia um, in particular, and, uh, and using butter in moderation. Mm. That's ghee, really good. Because ghee is a ghee is a butter byproduct. Ghee has actually been found to have high levels of oxidized cholesterol too. So I think ghee is one of these foods that also great to use in moderation. I have a few recipes in my in my cookbook that use ghee because it tastes it's just just so indulgent. But yeah, uh, I just used ghee to make my eggs this morning. So. <laughs> it, it oxidized, Courtney. Just kidding. I know. Dang. Uh, okay, yeah. That's on coconut oil. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a great question. Yeah. yeah, coconut oil. Actually, there's been some really interesting research. So depending on the level of refinement, can either have a neutral effect on your lipids or can drive LDL levels up. So refined coconut oil has been shown to actually raise uh, levels of LDL, mm. Um, mm. whereas extra virgin coconut oil has a neutral effect. And also coconut oil has um, medium chain triglycerides in it as a, as a significant proportion of its fatty acid content which does not affect uh, your, your LDL lipoproteins because of its, right. you know, it has a different yeah. metabolic path. Yeah. But still, you know, it's like what I use day to day, I'm, you know, I use coconut oil in recipes and stuff, but my day to day oil is, is extra virgin olive oil. What, mm. what do you think about 
like the oxidative or the denaturing uh, and oxidative damage that because, you know, you'll hear the argument both ways. Extra virgin olive oil is great, but it can be very unstable if it's heated to a certain, you know, it has a certain threshold for heat tolerance. What is your experience in looking at the research for that in terms of using it in a cooking environment? You know, whether it's like, you know, frying something like in a, you know, a wok or something, if you're using it or, you know, cooking it on low heat, is there a difference? Do you find that like that, that it is heat sensitive? It's very heat stable. It's because it's it's so loaded with antioxidants and because monounsaturated fat is chemically stable in and of itself and also extra virgin olive oil is about 15% saturated fat. So it's very heat stable. Oils have a smoke point, but smoke point is unrelated to the point at which an oil will oxidize and generate these 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 nasty byproducts like aldehydes. So for example, like butter is very chemically stable because it's predominantly saturated fat. So high heat cooking, if you're making a steak, for example, and you want to use some, throw some butter in the pan, by all means, go for it. It'll start to smoke at a certain point, but that's because the milk solids that remain in butter are burning, like the lactose and the casein. That doesn't mean that the oil is becoming cancerous, potentially, like when you heat soybean oil to very, you know, to, to very high um, temperatures. But, um, but no, extra virgin olive oil you can absolutely cook with. I will cook, you know, low to medium temperatures with it. If I'm stir frying something and I want to turn the heat up, you can still use extra virgin olive oil if there's food in the pan, right? Because the food helps dissipate the heat. Mm-hmm. It's a great fat to cook with. I, you know, I'll often toss vegetables in extra virgin olive oil and roast them at 350 degrees, 400 degrees. I stir fry mushrooms in, in extra virgin olive oil. You can totally cook with it. People in the Mediterranean region of the world they don't have like their, they don't have a cooking oil and then their dressing oil. They have their oil and their oil is extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. Yeah. It tastes so good, uh, but that is like one thing that you'll, you'll see a lot. And I'm glad that you brought up the smoke point because there is a lot of confusion around that. People just think the smoke point is the level at which now the oil becomes rancid or it's, it has a high level of, you know, oxidative damage to it. So I'm glad that you differentiated that because you see the language a lot of times get very confusing and, and, you know, people don't understand. And then they just feel like, well, I can only use it for salads. You know, it can only be cold. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's excellent. Uh, okay. I have to ask, what is your favorite recipe that is going to be in the genius kitchen, uh, cookbook? Oh my God. That's like the toughest question that you've asked me so far. <laughs> um, I would have to say I, there's a dish in my cookbook that is uh, dedicated to my mom. In particular, the whole book is dedicated mm-hmm. to my mom. But the dish is a bacalao dish, which is a bacalao is a Portuguese salted cod mm. um, dish. Mm. And it's a dish that my, my mom used to make for me. And I, I would get so excited when she would make it for me. And she would get excited and... Um, that was like our little shared thing. Also, because my I have these two bratty younger brothers, and they're, they're not bratty. I love them, but um, <laughs> they don't eat they don't eat fish. So me and my mom had this special bond because we both loved fish. And my two younger brothers, they never ate any any kind of fish. And so my mom would always make this dish specially for me, and I would be the only person in my house really to eat it. Um, and it's this delicious Portuguese dish. We're I mean we're not Portuguese. I don't even know where why it was something that my mom began even to make for me but it's so good you just you buy this salted codfish you soak it you um stir fry with a little extra virgin olive oil olives some potatoes i use sweet potatoes in the dish um it just it it comes it's so flaky and savory and 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 amazing Mm -hmm. yeah and and cod is like yeah it's really tasty it's really tasty i was actually in portugal couple years ago now and uh and i i remember at every restaurant i would go to i would get the bacalao just so i could try it and compare it to my mom's dish but yeah the one that i have in the book is so good and uh and it's so easy to make and it's just like it's loaded with protein healthy fats decent amount of of you know whole food slow burning carbohydrates and uh and i think people are going to love it so um, we have this book coming out, and uh, what's the set date for this ca- this book to be coming out? I'm genius. Comes out comes out March 29th. I'm super excited. A little self conscious because I'm on the cover of it, which I haven't been um, on my previous two books. But uh, but no, it's a it's a thick book. Oh, it's a as I mentioned, you're get you're getting kind of two books in one. It's like it's a cookbook, 
Um, and it's going to teach people, even with like no kitchen experience, how to how to really make some epic stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's also a resource, so it kind of breaks down each category of food, like the you know the conversation that we had about dairy fats and butter and stuff, and mm-hmm. all the different fish, all the oils. Like there's there's all that in the book as well. So there's a big the the book is front loaded with a ton of really useful information for people. Mm-hmm. And That's then awesome. uh, and then you get to the recipes with these gorgeous photos from an award winning food photographer that I hired to uh, to help me with them. So I'm pumped. March 29th it comes out, but people people. Depending on when this comes out, people can pre-order it now if it's prior to March 29th at GeniusKitchenBook.com. Mm-hmm. Um, or they can, if this is released, if they listen to it after March 29th, you can find it at any bookstore. It's called Genius Kitchen. Awesome. That's awesome. I can't wait. I actually pre-ordered it this morning uh, and I found the link through your Instagram. So, Oh, amazing. It's, it's also there, but I am super excited. I think that it one, the visual aspect with the pictures is always to me because I can just yeah. like quickly look and I'm like, oh yeah, this is, I'm in the mood for this. But also just knowing how to build out a healthy pantry and kitchen because mm-hmm. I I mean, just because I'm, I consider myself the chief, pur- chief purchasing officer of my house. So I'm the one doing all the buying and, you know, you go to the store and it's just like, there's just so much. And like, I, you know, especially if you're at a natural grocer, I mean, you could just like, you could just go to town. And like you said, like, you don't need, you don't need everything, but you also need some direction and you need like a filter because otherwise you could actually end up with a whole lot of crap that is not that healthy. It's just mocked up or sold to you on a platform of health. So I'm super excited to see the stuff that you really like and the things that promote in your opinion, based off of all the research you've done, you know, the healthiest food choices for longevity, for brain health, for cognitive function, but ultimately just for whole body well-being. So, you know, it's all interconnected. So I'm really, I'm really excited. Definitely. Yeah. I'm pumped for you guys to see it and to have, you know, a little piece of me in your, in your house with my freaking face on the cover. It's going to be really cool. (laughs) It's like a, it's like a coffee table book, I guess, you know? So um, I'll put it right in my kitchen, like right by my stove. We'll see yep. your face every day. See your day. face every day. You'll see Max yeah. right there. <laughs> I love it. I love every it. Every single day. Dude, like where, what's your, um, tell people your, um, your Instagram handle and how to like reach out. Your website's great. He has a great podcast. Tell people how they can contact you or get in touch with you through, the, um, through media. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to connect. So my Instagram is at Max Lugavere, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. I'm super active on that. And then my podcast is called The Genius Life. So you can get that wherever you get your podcast. And then, of course, Genius Kitchen, geniuskitchenbook.com is where you can go to find a bunch of links to different stores. But yeah, this wow. was a really great conversation. Yeah. Love talking to you guys. It's got a great convo, Max. We really appreciate it, man. This has been really good. People got such good info from this. So good. Yeah, yeah. This has been super fun. I listen to your podcast quite a bit. So you're an excellent host, by the way, too, because you, you are, man. a lot of great, great guests. Uh, but yeah, this was packed with so much information. I feel like I need to go back and re-listen, but um, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your experience, your research, your knowledge, and your personal story. I think that that is such a testimony too, because you're passionate about your work and you know the journey that's brought you here. And that's so evident in the, the product of, of your career and what you're doing to really empower people to take back their health. And that's exactly why we exist. Like we want people to know that like you can do this and your body's made to heal. So you've given people, you're equipping them, you're doing a great job and you're changing the landscape of health for sure. So keep it up. Keep it up, buddy. It's great. That means a lot. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Dr. Motley. It's uh, been a real treat to be here with you guys. Oh man. It's been our pleasure so much. Thank you, Max.